Good morning, everybody. It's a privilege to be here with you again and to share the Word of God with you. How many here have ever experienced a low mood, sometimes called depression? Well, I see a few. Statistically, in a room of about 200 people, 40 people will be depressed at this very moment. I'd like to discuss with you this morning a scripture from John's Gospel, chapter 5. And I've entitled my talk today, Jesus Confronts Depression and Despair. John chapter 5. And I'd like to read the first 16 verses. Reading at chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. The word Bethesda means the house of mercy. And just keep that in mind as we uh, talk this morning. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first after the stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore. so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. May God bless his word to us. Shall we just ask the Lord to bless our time together? 
Father in heaven, we're grateful to be in your presence here. We're grateful to be able to read your word and to think of it and to have your Holy Spirit assist us and guide us in understanding. And we pray, Father, that you would bless this congregation of your people. May we be encouraged, may we be challenged. Thank you again for your presence. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As 21st century people, you and I live in a world that has a bad case of uncertainty. A certain amount of fear of terrorism, a certain amount of war jitters, and a great deal of bad economic news. And I'd like to remind you of a few incidents that were reported in our area just recently. First, I refer to what has been described as the darkest day in the Oakland Police Department history. Describes a chaotic scene of miscommunication, bad planning, failure to meet department policy, etc., etc. It was just poor time for the department. A second incident involved a test of airport security, which failed very badly. 3.4 ounces of plastic explosives were slipped into someone's backpack without it being discovered. And the jitters continue. And of course, we have the incident of the underwear bomber with the potential of killing 350 people. And the economic front reminds us that personal bankruptcies rose throughout most of the Western states and throughout the nation. They rose 79.6% in Arizona, 59.5% in Nevada, and 58.8% in California. Unemployment nationwide is a great issue. And people are suffering and people are scared. What's going to happen to me and to my family? Every time I board an airplane, I'm, a, I'm reminded of the terrorist threat. Ever since I've gotten new knees of titanium. So I walk through and the bells go off. And I know the familiar sound, stand over there. And so very dutifully, I go over there and stand, raise your arms, palms up, and then I'm patted down. So that's my memory of flying the friendly skies. Our leaders tell us that the war on terrorism will last a long time and the confusion and depression is going to continue. And it's in times like these that we need to hear again the words of the Prince of Peace, the Redeemer, the Reconciler, the Savior, the one who gave his life that we might be saved from a terrible fate that is separation from God. Depression is common in the human experience. And each of us, I'm sure, have felt that 
down mood. Some of us tear up. Some of us wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. Some therapists, and I know a few therapists, having been in the business myself for a while, some therapists have been treating a post-9-11 depression syndrome for a long time. In a book entitled The Anatomy of Melancholy by Richard Burton, the author says, if there is a hell on earth, it is to be found in the melancholy or the depression of a man's heart. He calls that a hell on earth. And depression is probably the top mental problem in the United States. As many as 70% of college freshmen fight bouts of depression. They are the largest single group that experience depression. And one of the most common forms of depression is reactive or situational depression. And it can be described as a kind of grief. And grief is a reaction to a loss. And the grieving process takes us into a low mood or depression. And the low mood is obviously deeper for some than for others, and it may depend on the nature of the loss suffered. The big word in this kind of depression is the word loss. I lost something. I remember losing a daughter. And I didn't feel very good, I can tell you. It was a low mood, depression. Our passage for today, which we read just a while ago, is a very moving story of a man who seems to be depressed, discouraged, and victimized. And I'd like for us to look closely at this man then I would also like to take a fresh look at Jesus and see how he confronts this issue of depression. And if you still have your Bibles, keep, it, keep your finger there in John chapter 5. First, as you look at this man, note carefully, I believe he's depressed. He'd been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus in verse 6 says, do you want to get well? He doesn't give Jesus a simple yes or no. He feels he's got to explain his sad situation. Apparently the rule at this pool was everyone for himself. There were no numbers to take. No sweet little secretary that ensured everyone would get a turn at the pool. For 38 years, the system had not worked for this man. The whole system seemed to be unfair to him. He was never fast enough. Always someone stepped down in the pool ahead of him. There he is walking toward the pool, and somebody sneaks in front of him. Can you see how this man was discouraged? But there's more. They also see a man who feels victimized by what's going on. And I would like to remind you that a person who feels victimized is an angry person. 
I don't like to be a victim. And the way I express my victimization is anger. I'm angry at the system. I'm angry at society. I'm angry because I can't get into that pool. And perceived unfairness breeds anger. But there's still more. I further believe that this man was extremely lonely. And the essence of loneliness is revealed to us in the words in verse 7. I have no man to put me in the pool. No one to help me. I'm still alone. I have no family. I have no friends. I have no support group. No one seems to care. I have no one. And when you have no one, you feel pretty low. You feel down, lonely. To be an invalid for 38 years is bad enough. To always be beaten by someone else through the pool is to feel frustration. To have a cure so close, and yet it feels like light years away. And on top of this, to be alone must have been extremely painful. No one to share your sorrow. No one to share your pain with. That's pretty, pretty tough. Why he had no one to help him, I don't know. Was there something about this man that turned people off? Maybe, don't know. Was it simply because people had given up on him as being hopeless? Had people said, I'm going to spend time with people who have some hope. You're hopeless. I don't want to spend my time spinning my wheels when there's no end in sight. Are there anybody, is there anybody that you have given up on? As I thought of this question, I thought of certain people that I have found it hard to continue. Some time ago, I had on my desk a letter that came to me from a very needy person. And internally, I said to myself, I wish he would go to someone else. I wish he would send that letter to another person. I didn't want to deal with this. My thinking made me very uncomfortable. And so I finally responded and said, yes, I'll see you. I confess that I felt a whole lot better when I, when I said that. But it's easy to give up on people. I thought of an insurance course I took years ago thinking I might join my father-in-law's insurance business. And the instructor told us that on average, he made a sale after 12 calls. And his point in telling us this was that after you've had eight turndowns, you've only got four more to go and you make a sale. I also was reminded of a certain cult that on average makes 15 calls on a given family. They have found that 15 calls are necessary. And the message was, don't give up. Don't give up. Well, this man, I believe, had given up hope of ever being made better. It must have been devastating to come to the pool again and again, perhaps years, but yet never able 
to get into the pool on time when the water was bubbling. I imagine he saw others get into the pool. And I also imagine he had heard stories of their healings. And I suspect that he couldn't even be happy for those who were reported healed. Yeah, look, they got healed, but I here I'm still in my old miserable self. Whether or not the pool did indeed possess healing properties at certain times, or whether people simply believed it to have healing properties is not the issue here. People with various illnesses seem naturally to gather around mineral springs. And perhaps the pool here was being fed by some artesian wells below, which caused the bubbling, and therefore the idea that perhaps it was a healing pool. Hot Springs, Arkansas, was credited by the Spaniards with healing virtues. And the hot tub industry speaks of the health effects of a home spa. The issue in this passage is that this man believed he could be healed if somehow he could get in the pool when the waters began to bubble. This man, I believe, had at least a perceptual loss. He believed that he had lost the opportunity to be healed. And please note this. Imagined losses or perceived losses account for a good many depressed people. This man was discouraged, he felt victimized, he was angry, he was lonely, he felt a great loss in his life, he probably was bitter, and believe me, this, this all amounted to depression. Here in our chapter, we have a man so fatigued, so depleted of emotional strength that it is, it is harder for him to ask for help than it is to tell the story of disappointment and helplessness. This man, I suggest, could not bear the risk of telling Jesus, sure, of course I want to be made better. Why do you think I'm here? He couldn't risk that. Aren't you glad that Jesus is good enough and strong enough, and patient enough, and loving enough to bring healing to even this kind of a person. This man doesn't even know the name of his benefactor, Jesus. That's what verse 13 tells us. Now, let's look at Jesus. He's always a good person to look to. But before we do, I want to remind us again of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. Seven signs. There were lots of signs. There were lots of healings. But the writer of this Gospel chose seven signs. These signs that the Apostle John selected out of hundreds were given to point us to Jesus, the Son of God, that we might come to belief in him. These signs are gospel truth. The first sign was changing water into wine at a wedding. We believe that wine is a symbol of joy. 
And the question is, what do you do when the joy is gone? How do you respond to joy that has evaporated? What do you do? The text says that this sign revealed the glory of Jesus Christ and his disciples put their faith in him. To see the glory of Christ is to see the character of God and be aware that you're in the presence of God. When the symbol of joy, wine, has run out, we see Jesus, the joy restorer, bringing the best. And that's what he does. He brings the best. The second sign demonstrated the power and ability of Jesus to bring wholeness and healing to a person, even though Jesus was 20 to 25 miles distant. Can you imagine somebody in San Francisco being healed at the word here in San Ramon of Jesus? Be healed. And there that person in San Francisco, on Fillmore and O'Farrell or wherever, is healed. Now that's pretty impressive. That's very impressive. Jesus is not hindered by time, space, or distance to work in a person's life. The sign in our chapter, I believe, is given to us so that we can see a demonstration of what grace really means. We sometimes define grace as a gift freely given without, spring, without strings. It is unmerited, undeserved, and the man in our story received God's gift of grace. Grace found this needy man. Grace loved this man. Grace healed this man. And when we speak of the grace finding him, theologically we speak of that as prevenient grace. The grace that goes before everything. God's grace reached out before this man could reach out to him. So the first thing I want us to notice about Jesus is his grace, reaching out to a helpless person. Grace reaching out to a man who couldn't even respond to the simple question of Jesus. Do you want to get well? This person is so completely healed of his 38-year illness, there wasn't even any need for rehabilitation or physical therapy. I have a problem with my left thigh. And so I have been going to physical therapy. And uh, I wish I could tell you that it was doing some good. I'm not sure that it's doing any good. I feel the same after physical therapy than I did when I first went in. So I have one more session on Tuesday. So we'll see about this physical therapy. Do I want to get better? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, it's a little bit debilitating. The second thing I want us to notice about Jesus is that he really came in order to bring genuine wholeness to people. And that wholeness goes beyond even the wonderful gift of physical help. The Jews have a word for peace. It's the word shalom. And shalom means... In addition to peace, 
It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means totality. The free growth of the soul. Every form of happiness is contained in this word shalom. Going back to our text once again, in verses 9 to 12, the Pharisees had 39 classes of work which were forbidden to be done on the Sabbath. The very last one, number 39, you know what that one was? That one was that you were forbidden to carry something from here to there. So here was this man, 30 years, 38 years a, an invalid, forbidden when he was healed by Jesus to pick up his bed and walk a certain distance. That was rule number 39. The consequences of his disobeying the rabbis was that he could be stoned to death, but more likely he would be socially ostracized and he would be put out of the synagogue. In our church language, we would call that being excommunicated. Yes, exactly. Just had to check and see whether. Now I want you to notice verse 14 to an even deeper crisis. What does Jesus mean when he says something worse might happen to you? What's he talking about? What greater crisis could happen to the man than his former disability of 38 years and now this new threat by the Pharisees? What greater crisis than this? having to deal with the Jews' Sabbath law. What is Jesus talking about when he says something worse? Stop sinning so that nothing worse might happen to you. I think Jesus was speaking about the disability that sin brings. He's thinking about a spiritual disability, and this is far worse than anything physical. This worst thing probably meant being bashed, banished from the presence of God forever. I said Jesus came to bring genuine wholeness, and we find that illustrated here. Wholeness of the kind that Jesus brings is greater than physical wholeness, no matter how great that may be. Wholeness of the kind that Jesus brings is greater than social wholeness, no matter how great that may be. Wholeness of the kind that Jesus brings goes to the core of a man's being. We sometimes call that a man's soul. Jesus came to heal the soul, to set it free from sin's bondage. Jesus came to establish relationship among people. 
And for the soul to remain in sin's bondage is the greatest bondage of all. I want us to see Jesus who sets people free from that kind of bondage. Many of you here experience the bondage. Don't feel particularly close to the Savior. What do you do then? I believe when Jesus came to the world, he saw people with all kinds of needs. He saw hungry people. And we have a lot of hungry people in our world today. He saw people with physical disabilities, and there's lots of those today. He saw people who were social and religious outcasts, and there are many of those. He just sees hurting people. He saw hypocritical people. He saw people who were looking to be entertained. He saw depressed people. I think that one of the reasons for this story is to teach us that the Lord Jesus is a compassionate, gracious, loving person. And that he loves us. And he doesn't want us to continue under that domination of pain and sin and illness like this man had. His concern is that we be delivered from the bondage of sin. It teaches us that Jesus goes to the very core of a person's need which if the need is not met, our text says that a worse thing will be the result. Jesus never did overlook the physical need of people, for as we look at him in the Gospels, he healed so many. God, I believe, still searches in grace for people and says to all of us, do you want to get well? Do you really want to get well? If you're not satisfied with life, do you really want to get well? Or do you respond, well, I'm, but I'm not sick? To respond in that fashion would be to deceive yourself very deeply. Do you want to experience wholeness? Do you want to avoid that worst thing? We need to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. What is your question for Jesus today? I have a daughter who's experiencing some pain. And her pain is that uh, she doesn't make enough money to make the payments on her house. And hers is one of those houses that is called underwater. And she may lose that house. 
I'd like to say, Wendy, what is your message to Jesus? Well, Jesus, I want my house. I want to be able to stay there. I don't want to lose it. What is your question for Jesus? Unemployment is 8.1, though we understand that the real unemployment is 14 to 16%. And uh, to those people there, what, what do you want from Jesus? Well, I want a job. I want to be able to support my family. I want to be able to pay my bills. Jesus, can you help me in this? I'm so grateful for this passage here in, in the gospel. I'm so grateful that it takes the case of a man who is so desperate, depressed, fatigued, unable to be better. And then he tells us how Jesus, in great love and in great mercy and great compassion, reaches out and says, get up. Get up. And the man is healed in a couple of weeks. No, immediately, immediately. He doesn't wait. He knows our need. Well, let's pray. And let's thank the Lord for a God who is full of compassion and a God who is willing to meet our need, whatever that need may be. And there are so many needs in our world. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. A God of mercy. A God of grace. A God who is able and willing to meet our need. Father, we pray for any needs that may be in this congregation this morning. Perhaps the need is physical, and so we do pray that you would help in that. Perhaps the need is spiritual, and there needs to be a relationship established with the, with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And so we do pray for that. Thank you for your presence here. Thank you again for loving us. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.